0: Welcome to the My Data Podcast. I'm your host, Molly Schwartz. I have been working with the My Data movement for a few years, and I'm the convener of the My Data Hub in New York City. We're recording right now from my workplace, a studio at the Metropolitan New York Library Council, so thanks to them. And just a bit of background, my data is a vision, it's a series of principles, it's a movement, and it's a conference. Our objective is to develop develop awareness of how we as individuals can have more control over the data that describes us, and that means finding ways to have more of a handle on the data trails that we leave behind us in our everyday lives. You can find more about the movement at our website, mydata.org, and you can find more about the conference that's happening this year at the end of August in Helsinki at mydata2018.org. In every episode of the My Data podcast, we talk to a guest about their experience with personal data. But before that, here's My Data founder Antti Poikola with a My Data Minute.
1: Hi, I am Antti Yogi Poikola, the program lead of My Data 2018 conference. This is my data minute. welcome. Right now, in the aftermath of EU data protection regulation, we are seeing wave of data ownership debate again. Who should own what data? I say, stop speaking about personal data ownership. It is so tempting to proclaim that individuals should, should own their own data. However, the concept of ownership as an exclusive right is difficult to apply to data. In most cases, multiple parties, including both the individuals and the organizations, have some rights over the same datasets. For example, retail stores have rightful claims to use customer data that they collect from their loyalty card scheme, while at the same time individual car- card owners also have rights to the same data. My data as a concept addresses the uh, data control rather than data ownership. I should have rights and practical means to control who uses my data and for what purposes. Instead of debating over data ownership, we should focus on solving current barriers and data portability and interoperability problems so that people could actually and easily execute their rights and benefit about their data. See you next time. So
0: our guest today is Ohan Ozhan Gencholu. Oz is a co-founder of the, and the head of data science at a Helsinki-based AI startup called Top Data Science. And before that, he's worked in many different countries working in machine learning and doing research in AI, in artificial intelligence. So how are you today, Oz?
2: I'm great. Greetings from Helsinki.
0: Yeah, greetings from New York. So I've seen a lot of talk about artificial intelligence these days. I'm watching Westworld. It's a sci-fi television series about um, what happens when we create really intelligent robots. And you hear things coming out of France. The president of France saying that AI is one of the most important changes coming in the future. Um, And from from what I can get, there is a lot of fear and there's a lot of excitement. And overall, there's just a lot of mystery. People don't know what's coming down the road. How accurate do you find the ways that people are talking about AI in the media? Uh,
2: that's very true. That there's lots of talk uh, revolving around AI nowadays. In, in like it's basically everywhere. Uh, usually we don't in in the field we don't use the term AI because it almost. Uh, drop down to a pseudoscience uh, basically meaning, but what we use is machine learning, which is a subfield of computer science, but uh, I will, will of course, continue using AI if if that's, because that's the most preferred term nowadays. Uh, The predictions about AI is rather uncertain, so there's lots of talk in my view. In my view, it's quite difficult to guess even five to ten years, so for sure there will be amazing improvements changing our everyday lives, changing the big, big picture of the society even. Uh, But it's rather difficult to say how much in five to 10 years, because let's say you have been living in uh, middle ages. If you asked any, any person what will be your next 50 years, how it will look like, they would probably say, well, Pretty much the same as the previous 50 years, or something along that line. That is impossible to say right now because the growth, the improvements in in the whole technology field, is so exponential that uh, it's it's the uncertainty is quite big, even for for 10 years or even for five years. So in that sense, for sure, we can say that there will be great improvements. In several industries, almost every industry actually can benefit from AI. Uh, We can't really say how much of the jobs will be automated, or it's rather difficult to predict exactly how much improvement will actually come to our everyday life.
0: What is it like to work in a field where the future is so uncertain and things are moving so quickly? How do you cope with that? Do you feel like the skills that you already know have held true, or are you constantly having to update the way that you work?
2: Uh, Just the latter one. So for sure you have to constantly be aware of the recent research, recent developments, recent open source packages, what people have been talking about, recent trends in terms of technical trends, in terms of algorithm development, as well as application and industry because uh, the whole ai field why one reason of the whole machine learning and ai research being so exponentially growing is open open and free data and open and free publication uh, community so this has been a great change compared to our to previous way of publishing or doing research. Right now, uh, even biggest companies which conduct AI research, they are publishing their algorithms and results, they are publishing their codes so that people can improve on it, work on it. Uh, this is kind of also a marketing for them. That's, that's the truth. Uh, but this has been actually fueling the whole AI improvement significantly so for your question uh, you constantly have to be aware of what's going on recently it's uh, your skills of 3 3 years ago it's it's it may be obsolete in any time
0: that's quite remarkable that so many places are actually publishing their algorithms and making them open why do you think this has happened i feel like in the past, we've thought of big companies as keeping their algorithms very secret, guarding it under intellectual property law. What changed?
2: Yeah, so the way business was has been working in 90s is that you develop a proprietary algorithm and then you try to sell it, right? So this is almost totally opposite nowadays. Uh, big companies, Google, Facebook, whatever, Microsoft, they are the ones doing top-level AI research, and they are the ones publishing their algorithms, publishing their codes. There are, I would say, two main reasons for this. First of all is that, first one, first reason is that most of these algorithms are, we call it supervised algorithms in terms of technical terms, which means they require significant amount of annotated, so ground truthed data. So they require lots of examples to learn from, meaning that without having that data, it's almost impossible to create a value, even if you know the algorithm. So comparing how much data these companies have, the value is really coming from the data, actually. And I'm telling this as an AI person. So the data is the key. So, one reason is this. They are basically publishing this because pretty much they have the data to train these algorithms and it's almost impossible to uh, compete with these companies. Second reason is that this, this whole publishing it in terms of code, in terms of publications, making it open, has been kind of a marketing channel for, for mostly for recruitment for these top companies. There's a huge wave of smart people, smart researchers, professors, moving from academy to industry, especially these big corporate names. So basically they have amazing amount of data. They have amazing amount of computation power, which the current algorithms for sure require. So it's almost It's a very good place to work with in terms of doing research, uh, because those two things are for sure required. So by publishing these uh, results, these uh, algorithms and these, uh, let's say, codes, they are kind of doing marketing for top talent, and they are uh, pretty good with that, actually. I would say these are the two two main reasons.
0: That's really interesting. So in a lot of ways they're saying, here's the algorithm, have fun with it. We are the ones who have all the data and the algorithm is really almost useless. Um, So I'm interested, you you spoke about needing to follow a lot of top trends and about um, some of these private companies publishing their algorithms as a way to get some of the top AI researchers to come and join their company because they see what interesting work they're doing. And that's enticing to any researcher, I think. Um, you used to work in research or in academia, as I as I uh, understand it. What I'm a bit interested in your career trajectory. How did you end up working at a startup in Helsinki? Where did you get started?
2: So I have finished my bachelor's from my home country, Turkey. Then I uh, moved to Finland for a master's uh, master's degree in machine learning, and then I continued PhD. And then I have met a couple of smart people during my PhD. Uh, We basically had our own career paths. The other two people, one of them was a data scientist in a huge company, well-known company. The other one is a uh, top sales manager in another Nordic company. And I was a machine learning researcher. Then we had the same vision and we clicked. Uh, so, we have started working on small projects in our extra time um, because claiming that uh, just quit immediately is it's a bit unrealistic and it's you can easily fall through this what we what we call survivorship bias so you see a couple of examples of people who did that and did very well, but then you don't see the mass majority who failed that kind of uh, with that kind of approach. So we basically felt the waters a bit, couple of months and started getting small projects and we saw there is huge need for machine learning in many industries. In Finland, we started this around two and a half years ago. Then two years ago we quitted our jobs and officially started our startup top data science. Uh, that has been my journey, basically. Now I am uh, leading the data science team here and, of course, uh, implementing algorithms on a daily basis. We have customers from Japan, from Finland, of course, from Denmark, and we are working with industries in health, like healthcare, forestry, construction. Uh, because, as I, as I said, every industry can benefit from machine learning.
0: Right. And so you've worked with machine learning in a lot of different contexts, both in a lot of different countries and in a lot of different industries. But as you also mentioned, what makes these algorithms so effective is having really the right data and enough of it. So how is it for you working across the different industries? How much do you need to get to know a specific industry to create a good algorithm for it and know what examples to give it so that it can learn? Um, And how do you get that kind of background? How intensive do you have to get into each project? Uh,
2: That kind of depends on the client, to be honest. And some industries are uh, objectively a bit more old school. Uh, Usually forestry or construction or uh, this kind of uh, well-established like Industries are rather old school and even though it is changing, uh, you really have to uh, talk with experts and you you need that kind of knowledge transfer. So you need to make them understand to some extent how this AI works and how this machine learning solution works and how it can benefit them. And of course, to make it happen you need to get the knowledge on the field from them. So it has been always this kind of uh, knowledge transfer, which is in our business model. So we don't claim to do it, just uh, give us the data and then we will return you the results. We, we it's The whole pipeline is uh, working solution, software solution, uh, as well as knowledge transfer workshops with your internal team, if you have any internal data science team. Because many companies, they go with this hybrid model, meaning that they have some data science team, but even the biggest companies can't do everything alone. So then they they get help from startups like us for certain tasks or for co-creation. And in terms of... Uh, project speed or getting to the outcome, uh, I would say healthcare is rather slow, not necessarily because of the mindset of clinicians, doctors or experts, but rather than the privacy issues in terms of uh, the data, because uh, of course, health clinical data, let's say, is uh, extremely sensitive, especially if you do Anything barely related to genetic data, then uh, lawyers are <laughs> lawyers come in and say immediately, no, let's hold on. <laughs> so it it has been the the doctors and the clinicians in our projects. We have a couple of projects going on in cancer research, uh, applying machine learning for cancer, di- cancer uh, detection and diagnosis support. Uh, the clinicians, the doctors are very much innovative they are they are very aware of this whole trend and how machine learning and AI can actually decrease their workload help in their decision support Uh, but that is not enough because the decision makers, the administrative staff uh, or even even the governmental decisions uh, they have to be they have to be involved in this whole process and Lawyers have to talk and discuss. So, uh, just getting the data out of the hospital databases—it it can take lots of time.
0: I can imagine. Yeah. So, data is obviously a huge part of your work. Um, it's kind of the food for the algorithms, and you've brought up some of the privacy issues and concerns, especially as it comes to these different um, industries like healthcare. What do you want to see happen to make it so that data becomes easier to use in an ethical way? What's your dream of how the healthcare companies could be providing you data in the way that you could use it because that's obviously big in the my data principles is finding a way to reuse data or have secondary use in a way that's ethical and that lets people consent to things in a way that's transparent
2: yes. So the ut- utopic way of looking at uh, this perfect so perfect situation would be uh, having a database which is totally secured uh, and this database having such a structure that all the all the individuals can actually modify their consent for whatever. Whatever research or whatever uh, basically project that their data goes into. So this is very in line with of course, the whole my data paradigm. Uh, right now, there's no there's we are not even close to that, of course uh, And also, in terms of legal issues, the whole discussions uh, have to be, I would say, prioritized from the governmental or even political level. Because, of course, we have been talking about uh, what if this situation happened with AI in the future or all, all AI ethics and stuff. It's 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 nothing new, right? These philosophical discussions have been going on for tens of years. But now, it it is here. So these questions have to be... It's not a theoretical... Hey, let's assume this happened, kind of way. It is we have to solve these issues because it's it's right now happening. So I would say uh, incentives from the from the decision makers, whatever, let's say ministries, have to be made to make this happen because we have seen I have personally seen that doctors and clinicians or whatever the experts in that field being very much into it, very much. Eager to cooperate, collaborate, but then uh, legal issues stop them. Of course, then the lawyers—that's what—that's what their job is. So they are making sure everything is correct. But if more resources to this kind of administrative uh, decision-making legal issues is provided, then of course uh, things would happen much much faster and. Uh, it's it's quite important to uh, have some outputs working in real time, in real life. Meaning that some projects actually realized, and this decision support system with AI has been in use. Then it can it can actually provide examples of example as an example that okay, this is working. Let's let's create the same pipeline in maybe another task or in another, let's say, patient database, and small by like little by little, we can have this kind of uh, centralized, but totally secure, uh, centralized, not in, in, in terms of technology way, but mindset way, secure way of uh, analyzing, the whole, analyzing the whole data, and of course, changing the consent from the individual perspective. So, uh, for my point of view, the perfect situation is not necessarily, uh, I, I wouldn't say we should use this technology and this and this, but the perfect situation, uh, solution, or the perfect utopic uh, environment would come from the decision-making being very fast and well-established. Then, uh, the technology, uh, it it is already here, so it's, It's just a matter of implementation and putting some resources in it.
0: Yeah. So if you identify the real blocker to making some of this stuff happen, being the legal issues and the administrative issues and some of the laws coming from the government, do you feel like there are people in positions in government who understand well enough how this works? And what is one example that you would give them from your work that you wish that they knew about?
2: Uh, unfortunately, I don't think uh, most of the decision makers fully understand the potential impact of this whole thing. Uh, how it works. Understanding how it works is also similar. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if the decision makers totally understand how these things, how these algorithms and how these technologies work. Uh, so. One very great examples of increasing the total, like overall understanding towards AI, and I'm not talking about technical, mathematical understanding of it, but the general big picture uh, has been a couple of new movements uh, from from some industry companies or, or universities is this kind of online courses, very, very basic level courses to increase the understanding in A.I. for an average person. And these kind of uh, initiatives are, I think, very important because when when individuals, like every day you see people on the street and any any random person, if any average person who has nothing to do with A.I. in his, uh, let's say, career, if they have this understanding of how these things work, then of course there will be a population of people demanding things like working properly. Then there will be pressure in the uh, upper upper level. So okay, let's get these things right and correctly. Uh, so I think it's it's this kind of uh, bottom up approach is 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 quite important. If we if we kind of educate people in a general understanding of how these things work, then there will be demand to make it make these things work properly, securely, uh, in a way that it will benefit most in terms of the individual gain or the community and societal gain.
0: So it's really a question of general public education. What are, I think to a lot of people, the concepts of artificial intelligence and machine learning seem very abstract and kind of complicated what are some of the basic things that would be covered in an education, like intro to machine learning? What are some of the basic topics?
2: So some of the basic topics would be, uh, I would say, this difference between supervised algorithms and unsupervised algorithms. So the, the main difference is uh, supervised algorithms are algorithms that require examples, so they—they they re- you need to show lots of examples for them to learn. And the unsupervised way of doing things is without showing examples. It kind of clusters groups of data, and it has different uses. Uh, why is this relevant and important and significant? Is because annotating data is. It can be very expensive in terms of resources. For example, from our prostate cancer detection from biomedical images uh, research, uh, basically, annotating data means first you you wait several years... Well, basically, you wait several years so that people get cancer. (laughs) That's very costly. (laughs) Then, uh, trained expert, radiologist and pathologist has to go through certain certain procedures to annotate the data. You go through MR or a piece of tissue is taken from your prostate and you go to it's, it's called biopsy, and then the pathologist grades your uh, basically cancer aggressiveness and such. So basically this whole thing is extremely expensive, of course, and expensive in terms of time, in terms of uh, basically Money, and this is a this is a burden in the in the whole community. So understanding this difference and uh, these kind of requirements, I would say that would be first thing. Secondly, uh, this is this may be even more crucial that uh, the data, the bias in the data, which which is very common, is totally reflected in your trained ai model so people have to understand this so if if you if google translate or any uh, translation service which uses uh, deep learning this recent algorithms called deep neural networks actually the publication for google translate algorithm is just there anyone can read it uh, it's based on uh, recurrent neural networks so let's say, example of Google Translate, if it creates some kind of bias uh, in, in terms of, let's say, uh, race or sex or a certain bias in its translation, uh, there's not that much point uh, to blame the algorithm because it's just a tool that learns from the data and this data is coming from, uh, well, our, our view of the world. So this bias in the society, it just reflects it just reflects uh, to your output. So, I think, blaming the machine learning researchers, or blaming the algorithm in in these kind of things is, uh, it's, it means, it shows that you don't have much understanding of how these algorithms work, because these algorithms are much more complex than some if-else kind of uh, decision trees. So it's not that uh, researchers are trying to write some conditions. Oh, if this happens, then translate it like that. It's 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 basically learning from huge amount of data, and the bias in that data uh, is reflected uh, in your in the performance of your algorithm. So I think that would be the second most significant thing uh, to teach to to people.
0: Right. Yeah, bias and algorithms is a big topic of discussion these days, as is algorithmic transparency, which I've heard you talk a little bit about at previous MyData conferences. I am wondering how much, when you hear people, you just said that you think really we have to be looking beyond the algorithm. We have to be looking at the data that the algorithm is learning from and seeing how that's biased by people's different worldviews and by who's collecting the data and how how much do you feel like, as a machine learning uh, researcher and practitioner, how personally do you take these talks about bias and algorithms?
2: Well, I never take things personally. <laughs> That's not my style. But uh, I usually try to discuss uh, in, in these kind of topics that, uh, why it's, it's not a fault of an algorithm when there's a bias, uh, because these algorithms are, you can think of it—they are just tools. So you can use uh, machine learning algorithms to detect, detect, let's say, frauds, or you can use machine learning algorithms to, well, basically perform some frauds or illegal activities. So it's 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 just a bunch of tools based on. Matrix uh, multiplications and uh, matrix operations and calculus and linear algebra. So it's it's and probability theory. So it, it's not uh, some kind of a black magic that uh, <laughs> that you blame and on it. In in my data, uh, two thousand sixteen, I was basically giving a talk revolving around AI and my data, and back then the biggest criticism. Almost still towards AI and machine learning, these kind of recent AI algorithms was that oh, these algorithms are extremely black box, which is a valid, which was a valid criticism and still is. Meaning that these algorithms, when shown uh, lots of data, they perform very well. On the other hand, it's rather difficult to trace. How? Why they give that decision in their performance? So when they fail, it's rather difficult to pinpoint. Okay, this is why they failed because they are extremely nonlinear, extremely complex structures uh, that learns that is very data driven instead of this rule based uh, approach. So this has been recently changing. So there have been explainable machine learning. Competitions, interpretable, explainable uh, machine learning conferences and sessions in very, very important and big uh, conferences and workshops and journal, journal sessions. So this has been changing recently and that I will be a bit talking about in my data 2018 this year. So how this trend compared to two years ago have changed that we can we can open this black box a bit more. It's not totally transparent at all yet, but there's huge initiatives, and uh, I think it's important to give credit to all these researchers and practitioners who are working on interpretable and explainable and transparent machine learning and AI algorithms. So when these kind of talks actually arise, I, I just uh, I, I like discussing and arguing, actually personally. So. Oh I don't take anything personally, I just try to explain how these algorithms work and uh, why we have to in, investigate more in these kind of methodologies to make them perform as good as they are doing now, but being more interpretable. Because there is usually a trade-off between uh, interpretability and performance of an algorithm, because performance is pretty much, say, very very correlated with complexity it's easy to make things complex and uh, then they then you lose this kind of interpretability a bit but the point is this is changing and it's it's quite exciting
0: that is really exciting because i know a big thing that people are talking about with the changes in data protection rights is this idea of a right to explanation that if people are going to be subject to a certain algorithm then they deserve to know how that works, especially if it's using their personal data to drive it. So I I hadn't heard before that this was a new kind of a way to judge how good an algorithm is, is how explainable it is. Um, And that's really interesting the way that you put it, that you have to strike this balance between complexity and simplicity in a way, and you're kind of balancing how much does an algorithm being more explainable make it better? Versus, you know, its its performance. So that's that's really fascinating. Um, I wanted to know, speaking actually of the data protection regulations, how will um, the general data protection regulations coming out of the EU GDPR? How is that going to change your work?
2: Uh, for my work in my startup, GDPR will not have a huge impact. For sure it will have an impact. The main reason is that in our startup, in top data science, we don't don't do data collection. Uh, We don't do database maintenance. We don't do database integration. What we provide is uh, machine learning solutions out of our client's data. So uh, it's mostly uh, our client's problem when they actually how they maintain the data so in that sense it's it's not hugely affecting how we work but of course after all we have to analyze this data meaning that we have to get this data somewhere in our servers or in cloud servers and then we have to be uh, compliant with the new GDPR and all the all the regulations when analyzing this data, so this includes uh, anonymization or pseudonymization of data if there is some personal information. We we require this from the client all before taking the data anyway. But still, we we still have to be aware of uh, aware of these kind of issues. Uh, we have to be aware of where the servers are. are literally physically. I'm talking about the cloud computing servers. So there are certain regulations about where you can store this data in EU for example. Uh, And of course we have to be uh, careful about how to let's say interpret our results. So uh, this may not be in the regulation yet but I'm sure in the future, we will we will see more about interpretation or claims of your machine learning algorithms being in the regulation. So if you claim certain metrics, let's say you are working on cancer diagnosis, whatever cancer it is, and if you claim... Because you, I see lots of articles and blogs and news about or new research show, new AI algorithm, new machine learning algorithm, reaches uh, 95% accuracy in lung cancer detection. So, this this term, this metric accuracy, uh, it is rather meaningless, because if I say, uh, no one has lung cancer, because I, uh, most people don't, then I'm probably pretty much, Hopefully, more than ninety-five percent accurate. So, so uh, like basic statistics, right? So, in terms of interpreting and claiming your results, I think it's it's quite important for us to to use more, let's say, more more than accuracy. Other metrics like uh, false negatives, true positives, uh, and all kinds of false detections. Uh, other metrics in the in the field like receiver operator characteristics and other metrics that actually tell more than accuracy and this is not necessarily in gdpr now but uh, this kind of claims out of your out of your results and especially if it's a let's say clinical claim then it's it's a total other story but uh, i think this is quite significant that how you interpret your results and how do you how you basically uh, communicate your results with your client, with the public, uh, with the whole whole public and with individuals.
0: Right. So communication is a big part of GDPR as well. When you talk about having to be able to trace where data is stored and like on what servers in which countries, how difficult is that, especially when you're dealing with data stored in the cloud? Do people mostly know where their data is being stored?
2: Uh, as individuals, we don't, we don't really uh, know. I personally don't know where my, let's say, bank, banking uh, transactions are stored. Uh, but of course, in my company, it's when we use some cloud service servers, we we for sure know where that servers are physically located and we are aware of that. And that is easy to, uh, well, basically know and trace. But as an individual, uh, I don't know really where my personal data is physically located.
0: Do you think that's something you wish you knew or you should know?
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: And where do you think the fault lies? Who do you think, what is stopping you from knowing where your data is stored and which, like, do you think that's on the part of your bank that they should be saying, this is where we're storing your data?
2: But there should be some kind of interface that I can practic- practically, let's say, easily access to check where my data is stored. For example, it's every, every banking service has e-bank services, online banking services, right? So you can look at your transactions, you can buy and sell stuff, uh, you can, let's say, request new credit cards or whatsoever. It's, it shouldn't be that difficult to, to put where your data is located in one of those links or like in one of those documents. So I, I'm not sure if there is something like that. Even, and even if there is, it's probably not easy to find out uh I, I may need to call them and then they will probably call someone else and get back to me. And then I, I, I don't know. So it's rather, uh, let's say, for a case of bank, I think it's kind of bank's responsibility to give this information.
0: I'm sure that at the My Data conference, you'll be among a lot of other like-minded individuals who also think they should be able to find this data. So as I understand it, you did what a handful of people have done. And a few years ago, you requested your digital footprint from your mobile phone carrier. Um, What drove you to do that?
2: Uh, I was basically running a research on how easy and how data-friendly, data-analytics-friendly any kind of institution and organization is in terms of data collection and getting your personal data. Actually, I have written a publication out of it. It was mostly focused on health data, but almost any data is health data. So I basically requested my all my data from my mobile phone operator of back then. And then the point was I, I did these requests and Several couple of other other people actually did these requests uh, from every institution, organization or company, which we believed they had our data, our digital footprint. And then the the task, first of all, was curiosity. So how ready these companies and these institutions are to deliver my data uh, and in which format and in which speed? So my publication in my publication I basically quantized, uh, quantified these kind of aspects of which industries are rather more ready in terms of responding to you first, then delivering to you in terms of delivering time, delivery time, and the delivery format. And when I did this request to my mobile phone operator, they sent me hundreds of pages of. Printed papers uh, of, of my location and where which base station I, I was connected. Uh, that was a rather funny thing. So that was already a couple of years ago, but it it was for sure obviously proving a point that these institutions were not at all ready to this whole my data movement. So the. The ultimate, ultimate, let's say, ease of use would be these companies would have APIs so that individuals can access without sending emails or calling them and stuff like that. They can do whatever, whatever with their own data. But there was zero institutions three years ago having an API. Only handful of them sent uh, my data in in analytics-friendly format, meaning some kind of. Uh, csv or text file or digital file some excel file or something something like that and lots of lots of them sending pdfs or some sending printed papers
0: right so that was a few years ago already and now gdpr is coming and i think companies are going to have to be better about delivering yeah. people's data to them quickly and in some kind of machine-readable format, so some kind of spreadsheet or something. What are you most interested in learning about at the My Data conference this year? What do you hope that people are talking about? Um, are there any people who are going to be there who you have really been eager to connect with?
2: Uh, I haven't had time to check the check all of the talks and all of the speakers, but I would be interested in how... To be honest, I would be interested in how companies, rather big companies and more co- corporate companies, if there if there are any, are actually thinking about how they are thinking about this whole my data movement. Because, of course, individuals who are aware of uh, the whole my data paradigm and more whole my data concept, they will be there, and researchers th- doing my data research uh ethics like data ethics and uh, legal legal issue in around revolving around my data that kind of re- that kind of researchers will be there uh, but how how about uh let's say big corporates will there be any represent- representatives from uh that kind of big companies who are who are making business out of our data will will they be there so i would like to See or have some discussions with people who are more in the corporate corporate world, if if there are any. Uh, of course, this whole AI and ethics is something I am personally very interested. I am an AI AI person, uh, and that whole AI plus ethics uh, thing is, I think, very relevant. Simply because, as I mentioned, it is not. It's not anymore some some kind of theoretical discussions, but it is here for us to solve. So that that kind of challenges are and will be happening every day, and we can't we can't really fantasize about uh, yeah, but it's it's science fiction, and let's just let's just discuss and have fun and. No, we have to actually find some concrete solutions to these issues. So that I am pretty much interested in. And uh, I am lacking a bit behind on the legal stuff. (laughs) So uh, I I believe I can learn quite a lot from uh, legal experts uh, on this topic. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And as you say, AI is here and your startup, Top Data Science, is one of the ones working in it, doing AI as a service. Can you tell us where people can find more information about Top Data Science? Do you have a website, any social media accounts?
2: Yes, we are on LinkedIn. We have Twitter and we have, of course, a website. So uh, I I will provide the links and then people can find us from those three places.
0: Great. Yeah, we can put it in the show notes. And how about you? Where can people find information about you? Are you on any of the social media platforms?
2: Uh, I never personally had Facebook, Instagram, or uh, that sort of social media. Uh, I am on LinkedIn, though, so people can find me on
0: LinkedIn. Excellent. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk. This was great. Um, Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Yeah. It was a pleasure yeah total pleasure
3: thank you for listening to the MyData podcast the MyData conference takes place in Helsinki, Finland August 29th to 31st 2018 find out more on this year's conference website at mydata2018.org the show notes and video versions of this podcast are available on the MyData Global Network website at mydata.org you can contact us via email at podcast@mydata.org or on twitter at mydata.org we thank the Metropolitan New York Library Council for letting us record in their studio at 599 11th Avenue in New York City. Music is by David Cattery Music and Joachim Carud. This podcast is copyright MyData 2018. The MyData podcast was produced by me, Gianfranco Cicconi. The host was Molly Schwartz. Video and audio are available for redistribution under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License version 4.0 International. See you next time.